0: Rockheads, stop staring at the design patterns in the wallpaper and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Jeff Maciolik, here to announce show number 104 with guest Paul Sheriff, recorded live Friday, March 11, 2005. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net training developers to work smarter, and now offering hands-on VBnet, ASPnet, and C-Sharp classes online at www.franklins.net and by Telerik RAD Controls, the UI essentials for rapid ASPnet development online at www.telerik.com Support is also provided by Code Magazine, leading independent magazine for .NET developers, online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who's got an original copy of VB6, and it ain't for sale, Carl Franklin.
1: I to call my friends to play game.
0: And you
2: can't have it either. This is Carl. You're listening to .NET Rocks. Welcome, my friends. It's a uh, nice chilly weather here in new london connecticut a little slushy today how is it out there in vancouver today richard
3: beautiful and sunny like it's been all week blow me (laughs) well if there's any consolation it's still pretty warm in my office since i had the air conditioning failure of the server closet what happened um, actually, it popped a breaker, but I was out of town. Yesterday, I was uh, doing the uh, Victoria.net users group. I was doing a presentation on J2E and .net. And, of course, all technology gets out of control the moment you're out of reach. Right. So, literally, by the time Stacy got home last night, the alarms were going off, and she popped open the doors. It was 120 degrees Fahrenheit in the closet. Ooh man. Goodness. It's, it's never blown the breaker before, so she had no idea what had happened and uh, just left the doors open, let it cool down. Uh, when I got home this afternoon... I went, it was about 90 in there then, and uh, a trip reset the breaker, fire things up again, and it seems to be working. We're uh, we're back down to a nice, cool about 70, but uh, the room's still uh, got a lot of heat in it. It's going to take a while to chill out here. Wow, man. Never a dull moment around the the Campbell household, so... You're... Yeah, this is not a call most wives expect to make. <laughs> Sweetheart, your server closet is overheating. <laughs> well, I had a good week. I, I taught an
2: ASP, you know, master masterclass here, had six guys, and one of the... Well, uh, one of them came all the way from Brazil. I'm not wow. making this up. Yeah. He, uh, he works for an insurance company in Hartford, and uh, they sent him up here to take my class. And um, get this. The guy's name is he's a great guy. His name is Fabio, F-A-B-I-O. Excellent. And I said to him, I said, you know, did you know that you share the name of a romance novel cover poser guy who likes to say, I can't believe it's not butter? Then he says, "He says no, I never heard of him." <laughs> so there's a Brazilian guy named Fabio who doesn't know anything about that guy. Just goes to show you how just you know we lived in the, we live in a TV society here that you just say the word Fabio, and everybody knows who the guy is, even if you don't like him. You know, you still know who
3: he is, but only in North America. Yeah.
2: But this guy was cool though. He plays in a band. He's got a, a like a gospel band that plays Brazilian style gospel music. And and uh, we downloaded an MP3 and and uh, maybe we'll play a little on Mondays. But uh, that was that was my fun week. I had a great time with these guys. You know why? Because they were all like hardcore developers. You know they were uh, they were really into it. There was no academics there. You know it was all just like. You know, we we came in on Friday and we got done a little bit early. I was like, so I'll take requests. What do you guys want to see? One of the guys wanted to see a sort of a roll-your-own-rindle uh, symmetric encryption thing done over web services. So I'm like, "Wow, right. Yeah,
3: okay, we can do that. Pull out some code. <laughs> start writing it, you know. Worked great. Well, it sounds like a classic master's class. Everybody was serious. Everybody was really serious, and that was fun.
2: Well, hey, Richard, I got some mail this uh,
3: last couple of weeks, and then I went... You know, because, of course, I'm the new co-host, I'm just getting used to the fact that there is a steady stream of messages and stuff related to the show all the time. Yeah. You never got fan mail before, huh? No. Well, (laughs) you know, it used to be when I did conferences and things, you know, for a few days after the conference, you get a bunch of messages and stuff. But Mm -hmm. since .NET rocks, like, I'm getting email every day. It's freaking me out. It's a little little, uh, jarring. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it really is. No wonder your head's so big. My head is not big, man. It
2: just—it's <laughs> big boned. That's oh, all. That's what it is. Yeah. <laughs> well, anyway, I love getting email. I love reading it. It re- literally makes my
3: day. And oh, and I'm I'm totally with you. I, I, if I don't mean to disparage the messages I'm getting, thanks for sending them. Yep. I'm enjoying them. Yep. It's uh, it's fun to talk to people and know we're really uh, reaching some <laughs> minds and some interests out there. This one came from Jeff Hurst and spells his
2: name just like our Jeff. How about that? Yeah. Uh, and Hurst, not like Patty Hurst, but H-I-R-S-T. Hmm. And, you know, for if you need to ask, Google her. <laughs> uh, hey, Carl and guys, just figured that I would drop you a line from Scotland. I've been a keen listener of DNR for a year now, and it makes time fly by on my train journey into Edinburgh in the morning. It is really great to hear from such enthusiastic people. Well, we could maybe be a little more enthusiastic, don't you think? Sometimes we're a little subdued, Richard. You know, compared, compared to, like, to
3: the regular population, sometimes we're a little subdued. Compared but... to Steve
2: Bomber keynotes, you know, we're actually pretty He says, "I write a bi-monthly newsletter for the UK Visual Basic Users Group, VBUG, and I make reference to the show regularly." Very cool. The new morning show sounds great, although it will be around lunchtime here. Please make them downloadable for those of us outside the U.S. This will be great for the journey home. Many thanks for a great show, and please do not, uh, please do, cut a CD or make files available of some of your music. Yes, I've been meaning to do that, and I will. All the best. Well, you
3: know, this makes my point, doesn't it? We talked about this earlier this week that. Uh... The morning show, it should be morning everywhere. So we're going to just steadily feed content. We should just steadily feed content into the system so that in the morning he does have content. doesn't matter where he is. We're going to give too much away, but we are going to say you're not going to
2: believe what we're going to do. It's going to be fabulous. Yeah. It's going to be fabulous. You're going to love it. No matter where you are, it's going to be your morning show. Uh, I also last week went down to the Roanoke, not last week as you're listening to this. It would be two weeks ago. Uh, I went down to the Roanoke Valley .dot net users group in Virginia, and one of the guys there, his name is Tolga Balci, and uh, I, um, I I send he ordered a, a movie online, and I responded saying that I got the you know the the PayPal thing and it's all set and you should have it soon. So he he, he says back he he writes me back he says it was awesome having you here, uh, and what I did was um, I did a a demonstration for them of uh, handling hierarchical data and data sets and things. He says, I'm a very big fan of yours. Dot is my favorite show right now, and I've been listening to it while I commute. What a great idea. Also, I should tell (laughs) you I think it was very cool how in your demo you actually started from scratch and hand did everything. I've been to many sessions and listened to many speakers from many places, and most of the coding I see the speakers do is mainly copy and paste style dropping blocks of code from the toolbox or pre-built code that the speaker just walks us through, does some explaining, and tweaks the code a bit. It's a heck of a lot easier to follow uh, the thought process through and relate to the material when you do it like you did and code 0 to 100% all yourself with no pre-built template code. Very cool stuff. Tool got, And all I got to say is,
1: oh, oh,
2: oh, oh, oh. Man, your typing skills are where it's at. That's what I got. It. I gotta get better than Miller, though. You know, I'm gonna. I'm getting this data hand. Have you seen these things? Yeah, Richard? yeah.
3: The data hand. The, the, so you don't even have to lift your fingers anymore. Right. Just twitch them.
2: If you haven't seen this, go to datahand.com, and it's now only about five hundred bucks. It is normally about a thousand. They're they're doing a fifty percent special. Uh, believe me, I'm just telling you this because it's very cool. It's a a, a QWERTY keyboard, but. Every finger has a socket, and there's five different controllers on each finger—north, south, east, west, and down. And then your thumbs have like three or four different buttons as well. And uh, there's some levers and stuff that you can change modes. So you basically got to relearn how to type with this thing, but you don't move your fingers, and you yeah, don't. So your speed can be astounding. Your speed can really imp- get a lot faster than if you're just regular touch typing, or God forbid, hunt and peck typing. And uh, so didn't you review one of these on in earlier .NET Rocks? Oh, yeah, I reviewed what?
3: the one that was integrated into the chair. That's so it. You, you didn't have to re- and I told you, did I tell you the story at the time of the guy I knew who was a Linux guy who used a projector and set it up on his bed so he laid <laughs> flat on his back with his hands on the data hands and just looked up? <laughs> and, and he literally would code continuously, and then he'd fall asleep, he'd wake up and continue where he was. So he spent like half the code he wrote, he was only semi-conscious when he did it. <laughs> he went a little nuts. I mean, it's not just because he was dealing with open source stuff. You could just like get a straw to a to a source of
2: hot coffee, you know, just constantly yeah, sipping that and it. A, a catheter,
3: and you don't need a anything catheter else. Catheter,
2: <laughs> and somebody to bring you a sandwich once in a while. <laughs> <laughs>
3: That's living man, but you combine that data hand with miller's code rush oh God can you imagine that I'm out of control that's what i'm gonna do i'm gonna br- <laughs> i'm gonna
2: bring it out to conferences and I'm just gonna like write entire crm systems like right in in an hour
3: you know in front of people. yeah over the course of a session and right. it's an you know it's an interesting debate if you ever you know the inside of a speaker lounge what do speakers talk about they talk about cut and pasting code versus uh, hand keying code and, and what's yeah. a better way to do a session because if you're fumbly on the keyboard yeah. you do damage to your session that's right if you can't if you can't do it on the fly and uh, y- you'll really really look bad. So don't even try. Yeah, it's it's yeah it's it's a dangerous route. But you know you've done so much on the fly typing with all your class and things. I can see why you would pull it off beautifully. Plus, I've written the code so many
2: times now; it's like second nature, you know. Well, yeah. anyway, enough about that. Hey, before we get Paul on here, which I really do want to, I can't wait to talk to him because he's got some great stuff to say about architecture. Uh, let's talk about the um, this uh, demise of VB6, apparently, and the and the people who are freaking out over it.
3: Now, I've missed this. So you better bring me up to speed. All What's right. the story? story. I thought you were just, you know, had a gag line going.
2: Okay. The story is that uh, that Microsoft is dropping support for Visual Basic 6.0 on March 31st, and a whole bunch of MVPs for Visual Basic, and I'm, I'm an MVP for Visual Basic, but I didn't do this. They basically signed an online petition asking, no, demanding that Microsoft continue development of unmanaged Visual Basic and VBA, and uh, as a matter of um, advancing the platform that uh, you know millions of lines of code, billions of lines of code have been written in, and uh, all these people who have VB applications now basically are
3: stagnant. You know, continued <sighs> development, not just maintain support. Yes, but
2: they want them to keep. They want to what, innovate. They want them Microsoft to innovate the VB6 line. And continue, and uh, I, I think they're crazy. I, I do. Very I mean, boring. I mean, with all respect to my brethren in the Visual Basic MVP community,
3: get over it. <laughs> it's well, you know, it's because a lot of guys came out demanding support to continue for NT four. Yeah, right. And I don't have a whole lot of issue with people saying, "Look, I still have platform out here. I I want you to continue support." Although I'd have to wonder. After this many years of VB6 being out there and, you know, no more service packs, no more changes, yeah. well, how much support did you need?
2: Yeah, and and that's it. You know, if it's just that Microsoft is not giving support, has anybody called Microsoft for Visual Basic Support? Has anybody ever <laughs> called Microsoft for Visual Basic Support? I mean, the the Visual Basic Support is in the community and the billions of books and and the downloadable code and, you know, and all that kind of stuff. Granted, there's not a lot on the web now, but... You know, there's still a lot of books. So you go to eBay, you can pick up stuff. I mean, besides, if you're learning VB6 right now, you know,
3: um, yeah. that's the wrong thing to learn. It's the wrong thing to be doing. It's too long ago. Hey, Rob Windsor just sent me a link to uh, Brad McCabe's weblog talking about the fact that, hey, you know, support's not ending for VB6. Mainstream support ends on March 31st, but then they're going to go into a three-year extended support period. Okay. Which is, I think they do that with all products that they're finally phasing out for support. Is there, you go into this extended support and it's a little bit different. Okay. And, and uh, you know, different incident charges, but and But the so fact forth, is, so. people
2: are acting as if their VB6 code is going to suddenly stop working. Yeah. And
3: you're going to, on, on, on April 1st, <laughs> you're going to fire up the <laughs> VB6 development environment and it's going to pop up a little sign going, Neener, Neener. <laughs> and, and, you know, it works. Here's
2: my, here's my argument. And, you know, I know that. I'm you know this is how I feel and I'm not giving all sides the argument to those people I say get your own show this is my show and this is what I'm thinking I'm thinking that there's a lot of code out there that's written in VB6 yes let it run you know if if you if you are, are complaining about the features in the IDE start your own open source IDE project and and, an and make the IDE in .net so you actually can write something good you know, and and uh, support VB6. Look, the FRM files are are text. The, the project files are text. You know? Yeah, knock
3: yourself out. Knock yourself Let's out. face it. There's still a whole bunch of COBOL code out there, too. But yeah. I don't see raging excitement about a new version of COBOL. And then there's Interop. You can write wrappers around
2: VB6 uh, ActiveX DLLs, business objects. Oh, what's that you say? You didn't write business objects when everybody was saying write business objects? You put all your code behind your buttons and list boxes? Well, you know, that was not a good thing to do, and we told you so. So I'm sorry. I'm I'm, I'm getting off my soapbox now. Please don't email me with rants and, and flames because, you know – He's just going to read him I'm, on the air and I'm make you look gonna, bad. I'm just going to embarrass you, man. Basically,
0: basically, what Carl is saying is that he hates VB6 and he hates all VB6 developers <laughs> and that he thinks that anybody who's ever used VB6 is a jerk. <laughs> great. Great. <laughs> so, yeah. Great.
2: That's what I need. There you go. No, you know, VB6 was great in its time, but its time has gone and move on. That said, let's introduce our friend Paul. Uh, Paul the mountain climber. Right, Richard. <laughs> yeah, that's right. My climbing buddy. Yeah, Paul D. Sheriff is a recognized leader in the Visual Basic industry and a Microsoft Regional Director for the Southern California area. Paul is a frequent speaker at Microsoft Developer Days, Microsoft Tech Ed, Microsoft MSDN Presents, Access VBA Advisor Developer Conferences, and user groups across the country. Paul is a contributing editor to Access VBA Advisor Magazine. Uh, and you can also see PaulTeaching.net on Microsoft webcasts and with Blast Through Learning videos. Check out Paul's new book, ASP.net Developers Jumpstart with co-author Ken Getz. Won't you please welcome the one, the only, the fabulous Paul Sheriff. How are you, man?
4: Hey, good. How you guys doing? Great. All right. So, yeah, I like your VB6 commentary there. I did VB6 forever as, as well, but uh, I believe it's time to move on as well. Let's, let's get off it, man.
3: Yep. Well, and I mentioned this to Carl, but you're an old-school developer. When I first knew you, you were a Clipper guy. You've changed languages a bunch of times.
4: That's right. I've done COBOL, Clipper, uh, a little bit of FORTRAN. I did some ACTOR, which is a OOP language that got killed a long time ago.
3: When all the OOP languages are supposed to be killed.
4: <laughs> so, yep, I've done a lot. That yeah. tells me I guess I'm old, right?
3: Well, so are we. So am I.
4: Yep. But well, we're not too old to climb up Kilimanjaro, which Richard and I did last October.
3: Sure did, Bob. Yeah, what was that like? Who who threw up <laughs> first? Who threw up first? I think it was me. Now oh. you know it's not true, buddy. I'll tell you who threw up first. You didn't. You, you didn't throw up at Arrow, did you?
4: Uh, yeah, that's where I did.
3: Oh, that's right, you did. Okay, because uh, my favorite throw up story of that whole thing is Stevie Forte. When we got to the edge of the crater, he get up to the top. He said, he looks around, and goes "Wahoo!" and then he throws up and he says, "Okay, let's go." Yeah, I figured that's the uh, that's the, you know the serious mountain climbers, the guy who doesn't even break stride while throwing up. That's right. So, Paul, architecture. This is your thing lately, huh? Well,
4: yeah. You know, I've been doing a lot of architecture stuff lately. It's it seems that as uh, you know, my shop's traditionally done a lot of outsourcing, and as that kind of moves away, shall we say, um, we're moving more into the architecture realm now. So, it's been kind of fun getting to go in and just really do kind of some short gigs help people design code correctly, and and set up their shops correctly. It's it's a lot of fun.
2: So why, you know, for the, I guess there's a lot of people who still uh, haven't gotten it that, I'll tell you what, man, it comes down to this. So many people I talk to at user groups or wherever, they bring it up to their bosses, guys, you know, we can't just jump into this next project. We're going to have to sit down and think it through first. And the answer is always no time for that. Uh let's just blast through it. No time to think. Write code. Do you see that a lot yourself?
4: Oh, that's you know, that's what we see all the time and that that's why we think architecture is so necessary. I mean, you know, I always liken it to building a house, right? Um, you know, are you gonna just you know go, go get a contractor and say, Build me a house? Right. Right? I mean what's he gonna do? He's gonna say, Okay, well wait a minute, how many rooms do you want? How many, you know, do you want a garage, you know, do you want one story, two story? They're not taking the time to plan and design. I mean, you don't do that when you're building a house. Why should you do it when you're developing software, right? Right. The same thing. And, you know, I hear that all the time. Not enough time to do it right, you know, and that's that's a real problem. And I think that, you know, if we get more people thinking before they're coding, I think things will go faster. And obviously we're going to lower the the cost of ownership over the long run, too. So, yeah, yeah,
2: that's what it's all and about. That's what we're doing. Think before you write.
4: Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Absolutely. And it's not that hard, right? I mean, most of us do some thinking up front and we try to get some things. We all know that we need to write some sort of specs down. I think people are just not maybe thinking a little, you know, thinking a little bit more high level. Well, how can I reuse some things that I've done before? I think that's where we kind of need to move a little bit. And that's what architecture is all about, right?
2: Do you have any sort of, you know, minimal set of things that you should do when you sit down to architect? Or design a system you know like if you if something something that a developer could bring to their boss and say okay a compromise can we at least do this
4: right there's there's a few things that i kind of look at um right there and there's really like I, I look at three things that i think every shop should have and that is their roadmap which is just you know essentially a, a process document that says how we're going to develop each project we're going to start out by gathering this amount of requirements, this amount of business rules, this amount of business cases, Yeah. then we're going to have standards that we all adhere to at our shop, and then we've got to have some reusable libraries of code, and believe it or not, I find that, you know, some people have reusable libraries, but others just keep copying code from, you know, from application to application. Right. So for me, the three things are really the process, the standards, and then these reusable libraries or frameworks, you know, that we can just continue to use over and over again. And we're not changing them each time.
3: Now, you have a you have a framework. You've always had a framework. I mean, the, I'm listening to, to you, and I know you've believed this for 15 years. I mean, we've known each other a long time. And it doesn't matter what the development language was, it was. This was always a good idea, that there's a set of code that you use consistently. There's a right way to do data access. There's a right way to build forms. And you come up with a system that you can count on that's reliable, and, and you use it over and over again.
4: That's right. I mean, if you remember, I had a product in Clipper that yeah. helped me develop and it was an architecture. It was a framework.
3: Yeah. It's a framework for for not wasting time doing that same old stuff over and over and over again that every business app needs.
4: That's correct, you know. There's really, I mean, I we have identified probably about I think 10 to 15, maybe even 20 separate application blocks that we reuse over and over again, you know, in every application. So we created our own framework that we use every single time we start a new application. And that extends each time too. After each application, we go back and say, well, what did we do in here that we can reuse? And we put it back into our architecture, right? So it just keeps feeding itself. It's really kind of a neat cycle when you get into doing this way and thinking this way, this more generic way of thinking.
2: Do you you think that a lot of it is ego? Like, you know, developers like to just, you know, be creative and see what happens and refactor and, and, you know, Organically figure out what should be the components and where things should live, and it's kind of a nice little puzzle. And blah blah blah. Do you think like something that's over architected and over sort of is more boring to a, a developer than, than the challenge of you know creating the masterpiece?
4: Oh, absolutely. I mean, I and that's one of the things that we run into all the time. I mean, you said it yourself, I mean, over engineering. And just, I mean, you got to remember, oh God, you know, yeah. we're all programmers. We love to tinker. You that's know, right. that is the fun part <laughs> of what we do, isn't it? That's right. We love to just get down and tinker especially, and have fun.
2: Especially new technologies. Anything that's new, you know, gets yeah. totally overused. Yeah.
4: Absolutely. You know, so they go out and they read the latest article and, you know, they get done and they say, oh, I got to use that technique. And even though that they had another technique that they used in the last app that works just fine, they'll go ahead and want to reinvent the wheel. You know, and that's one of the things that I mean. Richard knows me, and he knows that you know we've had a framework forever. Do we change it every single time? No. We have something that works across almost every app that we do, and then you know it may not be the best way to do it, but you know what? It's consistent. Right. It works. We've already debugged it, and because it's been running in twenty other applications, so that's I'm it. not going to touch it.
2: The consistency you know, be thing. Yeah, may a better
4: is... way, but you know what? I don't have time. My, You're right. My, my people are paying me to get a job done not to sit there and tinker with code.
2: You said it. The consistency is key because you know what to expect. You know where that code is. You know how to call it. You know what it does. You're familiar with it. Um, right. tell, me, tell me about your we, – we really haven't talked much, even on your last show, about your your framework. I mean what, what was the genesis of that and, and what does it do exactly? And how, how would it compare to like the mere mortals framework or, or even why do, you, why do you even need it if you have a .NET
4: framework? That's a great question, and you know I get that all the time. I mean, that's one of the things that we talk about all the time. I, I've even written up some comparisons between some of these other ones, but because there's even the Microsoft Enterprise Application Blocks, right?
2: Oh yeah, you know, I I meant to announce that that those yeah. things just came out. The the uh, Enterprise Application Block just came out. Have you seen it?
4: Oh yeah, yeah. I've downloaded. I've, I I looked at it. You know, it's it's pretty cool. They got a lot of great stuff. You know, so I mean. You're kind of the root of this question. Really, is why do you need a framework? Right, and kind of what should you have in it?
2: Right, and and, t- and brag a little. I mean, tell me about your framework. So tell me right. what it let's, does.
4: Let's yeah. talk a little bit about the reasons, though, why you need a framework. Right. Sure. I mean, to me, it's there's a lot of business reasons there. If I've got something that's already developed, I can reduce my time to market, and I can reduce my total cost of ownership, not only in the initial startup of the development time, but also that if I've got stuff that I know works in every application. I know I'm not going to have a lot of maintenance on that piece downstream as well. So overall, we're lowering our costs, and that's what businesses want to do today, right? Okay? So then let's talk about the things that you need inside of a framework, right? And that's what we've got. We've got this really nice framework that, I mean, I can literally build an application in, I don't know, know, about 30 seconds. I can have a full working application with all this stuff already built. Okay? So what kind of things do we have, right? We have uh, a data access wrapper. Okay, mm-hmm. we always wrap up our ADO.net or whatever data access method of the day is with Microsoft, right? Yeah. <laughs> we all have been there. Mm.
2: Dot D- okay? D- exception yeah.
4: management. You've got to have a way to handle exceptions, you know, publish exceptions out to a table, to an email. You need some way to deal with application-wide settings. You need a configuration management uh, application block that can pull from a config file, or you want to store things in the registry, or maybe an XML file sitting out somewhere else because you've got a web farm going. You need that thing built in. You need event logging, audit tracking. You need to override, or excuse me, inherit from the base page class or the base form class so that you can add on things. You need a full security system.
2: You just glossed over something that's really, really huge. And uh, Marcus Egger and I have been talking about this uh, offline quite a bit. And that is you need to abstract the base classes. You need to abstract the the forms and the controls that you're going to use, even if you're not modifying them, right? Right. Because then when you do need to modify their behavior and do your overrides and stuff,
3: you're not breaking your code.
4: That's correct. Yeah. I I talked to Marcus about this too. Really important stuff. I
3: mean, this is about maintainability of code rather than speed of development. It's, you're going to change this inevitably, and and these are things that are going to make it so much easier to do those things. right.
4: Well, let me give you a case in point. I mean, that's an excellent point there, but it actually has to do with both of those things, right? Because we were developing for a for a company and they told us that they have all these remote sites out there and we said oh no problem we can develop for that and so we developed an asp.net application and you know it wasn't a huge app maybe about 150 forms or so okay so we get done and we put the thing out there and the people start hitting it from one of the remote sites and it's just taking 10 seconds to display any page hmm. and you know we're not talking big pages here we're talking about you know 100k page and so you know we find out that they had cut they have the bandwidth Okay, they, uh, they, had a, they shaped the bandwidth, so the mainframe had half, and HTTP traffic had the other half. They also told us there were 80 users out there, and the mainframe had versatile capabilities into the other half. <laughs> Oops. So our average throughput was 3K. Yeah.
3: Very nice, <laughs> yeah. Dial-up speeds. Sounds like
2: .NET rocks about a month ago. <laughs>
4: <laughs> so what did we do? Okay, well, I found I just read this great article by Dino. You know, talking about how you can persist the view state on the server. Yeah. sending it down. Yeah. Yeah. So what did we do? I had to override two methods in the base page class. Now, did I have to visit all 150 forms? No, right? All I had to do was change my base page class, recompile, and in an hour, I had a fix out to them that now cut the size of every page by about 40%.
2: You know, that's such an awesome trick. I show that in my class. I showed that to to, uh, the guys here, and they were freaking out. You combine yeah. that. You combine that with something like smart navigation that keeps you on the same page, and so you don't have multiple versions for different pages and back button yeah. issues. And uh, and an architecture I like to use, which is I don't use more than one page. I use one page. I have my layout. You know, my whether it's an explorer layout or whatever, and I use user controls and I just turn the user controls on and off, visible, invisible, and in tables. And so I'm just essentially when I'm viewing something. I have a user control that does whatever it is. If I'm editing a table, for example, I have an editor for it. I set the, you know, the primary key and that kicks everything off. It does the updates and everything. I just, you know, show them and hide them. And that keeps everything on the same page, keeps the view state uh, easy. I don't have back button issues, man. There's all sorts of great stuff like that you can do.
4: And that's because we're taking advantage of the tools that are built in. But we're also, you know, like you said, abstracting them away. We're... We're adding on our own functionality sometimes, but sometimes we're just inheriting from it because we know it's going to change later on. Yeah. You know, and that's the key, right? I mean, that's that whole maintenance cycle that most people just drill into and just right. never get out of. Right. So, you know, so, all those things like user controls are so important, style sheets, user tracking, user login tracking. Yeah. You know, as the world becomes more privacy uh, aware and, you know, people are getting sued over that stuff, those things are becoming very important, knowing who's doing what on your system.
2: development should definitely check out Telerik RAD RAD control suite the UI essentials for rapid ASP.NET development online at www.telerik.com T E L E R I K.com their new sponsor and uh, we've taken their tools for a test drive here and we like what we see this indispensable collection of components cover the major aspects of most web applications from the CMS Backbone and the WYSIWYG editor to Navigation, Content Rotation, and Charting. Telerik has just released version Q1 2005 of the RAD Control Suite, which features new major versions of their TreeView, PanelBar, and Charting components. The company has been prominent for frequent releases, so you can expect something new every month. RAD Controls is not merely a collection of ordinary controls, but rather a value set of products, many of which are market leaders in their respective categories. They've received a number of industry awards and recognitions. Moreover, as of June 2004, a modified version of their flagship control, the HTML content editor called RAD Editor, has been made available by Microsoft as a replacement of the default HTML placeholder in Microsoft Content Management Server 2002. All the individual controls can also be purchased separately. If you only need navigation components, for example, you can opt in for the subset called RAD Navigation Suite. A subscription option is also available, which entitles you to new products and free updates for one year. So you should definitely check them out. Telerik RAD Control Suite Q1 2005 for ASPNet at www.telerik.com. Why are bosses afraid of the word architecture and design and front-loading the process? Why are they afraid of this? I mean, you know, what's what's the deal? If if you can – you know, if they can't see that the end result is, you know, where it's going to be done faster and it's going to be better and the next time we do it, it's going to be even faster and better, what, what are they afraid of? What is it, stupidity? Is it fear? What is it?
4: I'm not going to ever say stupidity about management. What I'm going to say <laughs> is just that they're ignorant. Okay? No, they're ignorant of the process, okay? okay. And here's the problem, and, and you'll see this just about everywhere today, is that management looks at, at IT as an overhead, okay? <laughs> that is the wrong way to look at IT. You need to look at IT as a profit center. And if you're not looking at IT as a profit center, then they, you your guys can say whatever you want, right? They can come up and say, oh, we need architecture, we need this, and they're saying, how much is it going to cost me? Instead right. of... How much can that save us? Right. How much can that increase my profit? Yeah. Okay. And that is the major problem today. So it's really not the fault of management. It's not the fault of developers. It's the the fault of the industry for setting up IT as a cost center instead of a profit center.
3: I think I made more money uh, as an IT guy being able to go into the boardroom and convince them uh, always of return on investment from technology. That, you know, the business couldn't make a move without technology supporting it. And if we did it properly, everybody made more money.
1: Yeah.
4: Yeah, absolutely. And you just keyed on something, too, there, Richard, which goes hand in hand with what I was just saying is return on investment. How many companies have you been in where they actually do that, Richard? Yeah.
3: You well, know, if, if I'm not there, it ain't done, right? Like that's the <laughs> truth. People don't sit down and do the numbers. Yeah. You know, developers hate them, and yep. managers do battle with the cost concepts. But it's it's a very hard thing to actually work it out and say this piece of software makes us this much money.
4: Right, right, right. But that's what has to be done. And if you can show them, look, if we do this without an architecture, it's going to take us this long. Right. If we take you know, let's say it takes, you know, 20% longer to do it without an architecture, okay? But if an architecture is going to save them, you know, 30%, okay, over the long run, they're going to pay for that in, you know, X amount of time, right? Depending on how much it costs them to implement that architecture.
2: How it? A, dev- a simple yeah. formula.
4: Just nobody sits down and does it.
2: How does a developer get those kind of no- – I mean, it's – you know the developer is the guy that's making the argument, and he doesn't have access to the numbers. And you know what is he? Got, what has he got to do? Go talk to the uh, the CTA, you know, the CFO, and right. say and say, right. you know, can you help me quantify this and and per, you know sure. present a report? I mean, that's the kind of stuff you do, Richard, right? Yeah, that's exactly
3: the kind of work I do.
4: Right, and that's what we end up doing too a lot. You know, when I go in to do architecture, okay, I'm not talking about just architecting a single application. A lot of times, I'm talking. To the CIO, you know, or whoever has um, you know responsibility over that IT department, and talking about these things, exactly what we're talking about. Hey, let's figure out, you know, how much is your IT IT department, you know, making for you versus how much is it costing, you, you yeah. know. And when I start doing that, we start putting some of the numbers together. Like, wow. Yeah. Now, sometimes what it's, what has happened is that we end up firing people because they realize that if they just put a good architecture in place with some better tools. They can actually get rid of one or two programmers. Yeah, that's not a good thing.
3: Maybe that's the know. problem. <laughs> but I, I often, when you get in that situation, you start talking about more projects. Yeah. Another spin you put on this whole thing is the value of training. That I can take these four guys out of circulation for a week and improve their productivity for the year by twenty percent or fifteen yeah. percent, and yeah. that's a net, you know, profit. Especially if you send them to uh, Franklin's net or uh, or Paul. There right. you go. Well. I, I I'll flatly admit I have licensed Paul Sheriff courseware to teach in classes <laughs> in other countries and other places. <laughs> cool, I have. Cool, that's right. And Paul, you once quoted a number to me. Or it wasn't really a number, but it was an I- ideology of of what the framework di- does for your productivity.
4: Right. I don't I mean actually. Microsoft has a you know a tool online to help you calculate your return on investment for going into .NET. Right. And you can put in your training costs and your average programmer costs and all of that and figure out how long it's going to take you to get back your money on that. And what we did, and this kind of goes back to what we were talking about, is, you know, why do people need a framework on top of .NET?
1: Right, right. And it's
4: because the .NET framework will get you part way, but it's it's the good plumbing and it's the underneath stuff, but it doesn't build the rest of the house. You know, adding this other stuff on that I talked about, the exception management, configuration management, the security system, all of that, That's what helps you get the rest of the house built. That's where you're going to start seeing your return on investment.
3: And admittedly, the framework you're building here is limiting the scope of the kind of apps you build. You're focusing on business-oriented applications. You're not building video games. Mm -hmm. You're not building space navigation systems. You're building business apps. Mm -hmm. Yes.
4: Yes. So if I do that and if I look at how long it takes me to do an application, and really what we did is we sat down and we did some metrics around, okay, I have to write this amount of code. Um, with this failure rate, okay, for doing a standard add, edit, delete screen, then if I take my code generator, which can generate the you know complete add, edit, delete screen and the complete add, edit, delete code to go against my data layer, and I have saved now X amount of time and my failure rate has gone to zero, you know what's my productivity gain?
2: Do you okay, use that's code generators, a very Paul? Very
4: simple formula.
2: Paul, do you use code
4: generators? Absolutely. Which uh, I have ever since my Clipper days.
2: <laughs> what uh, what ones are you using these days?
4: Well, actually, we use one that we built in-house. Okay, um, we built this thing back in the VB4 days, and we've upgraded it for VB5, VB6, and now VB.NET. So,
2: okay, have you seen any of the third-party ones out there, like Declare It or uh, Kathleen Dollard stuff? Or
4: yeah, I have, and I mean, I'm not going to speak about anyone in specific, but let me tell you one of the issues that I have with some of the code generators out there, and that is they are just code generators. Yeah. And what I mean by that is that they will spit out the same code over and over. Very few of them actually take advantage of inheriting from a base class mm. or using any sort of data access layer.
1: Mm.
4: So mm. what what ends up happening is they're spitting out the same goo every single time. Right. So what if you want to make a change? You've got to go visit all that goo that got spit out or you have to regenerate instead of changing the base class where that... Code lives.
2: Can't you use a code? Don't a lot of these code generators work with templates, though? So you would actually build your class hierarchy and just plug in the variables uh, where they where they are. And do, isn't Absolutely. that how they work?
4: Yeah, that's that is how a lot of them work. Okay, so but that takes a lot of time for you to get up and going. Plus, you then have to learn that template language.
2: Right. So what you know, is it? Why,
4: what, why haven't they already done that?
2: Right. What is your what's different about the one you built in house? Why why do you like it?
4: Well, it is all template-driven, obviously, but it also generates code that automatically inherits from our data, data classes, okay. right? And our our business logic and some of the stuff that we can generate, yeah. it all comes directly from there so that we're not duplicating that code over and over again. We have a good inheritance hierarchy Got already it. built in, and our code generator just generates the part that's unique for going against each table, view, or store procedure, right? Mm-hmm. And that's part of that architecture that we were talking about of, you know, inheriting from a base page class, right? It's the same concept.
2: That's cool stuff. So
4: people should, you know, like target the Microsoft Data Access Application Block. It's free. Go get it. And then build a template in Codesmith or, you know, whatever code generator they're using. And and just generate against that so that you're not duplicating that code. Yeah, that'd be great.
3: Oh, hey, a... you once told me that one of the side effects of the framework was getting new developers up to speed quickly. Right. You, you still subscribe to that, and you've you got uh, cases for that?
4: Well, absolutely. I mean, you know, if here's the thing, right? I mean, the, 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 talking about the VB6 developers, they see – the reason why a lot of them want to stay in VB6 is because of the huge hurdle of moving to .NET, isn't it? Yeah. Okay? So why is it such a big hurdle? Well, because there's not enough wrapped up. There's a lot of stuff in the .NET framework that's wrapped up, but there should be more. And that's where a good framework, right? If you've wrapped up a lot of those things, like, okay, you, um, Carl, you were talking about teaching some guy how to do, you know, a Rindel symmetric algorithm. right? Okay, well, you know, it's not hard code. It's like, t- or not a lot of code. It's like 10 lines of code. But to teach somebody that, you have to teach them about iCrypto transforms and well, actually, you know, memory streams.
2: Actually, I had um, a library that I've already developed, and I made it easy for people. So we didn't even get into that. I just said, here, exactly. call encrypt and decrypt.
1: You know? Right,
4: Exactly. <laughs> Okay, and that's a prime example right there, isn't it? Yeah. Okay, of a good architecture because sure. you took something that was already there, wrapped it up, so it now becomes like two lines of code, right?
2: I seem to be really that's good what at we're that. About. I seem to be so really good you at uh, two taking lines other. Of code
4: or ten lines of code, right? That's what it comes down to.
2: Yeah, I seem to be really good at taking other people's code and putting wrapper DLLs around it and posting it on my website.
4: Yeah, uh, exactly.
2: With full credit, of course. But you know, that's that's the kind of stuff I do. I see something that's out there that. Is a little difficult to figure out and it could be easier. And I just right. wrap it up. There's a yep. few of those things. Is that out there? really
4: what architecture is about and what frameworks are about?
2: Sure, man. Making
4: stuff that already exists, making it easier. And that goes to Richard's question Isn't it easier for people to transition if they have something already built? Absolutely.
2: Hey, we got a question from the chat room here. This is from uh, Buddy Lindsay from Tulsa, Oklahoma. And he says To a person that would like to become a software architect, and is just getting into the development world, what would you suggest they do?
4: Okay, so <laughs> that's a great question. I mean, if you're just getting into the development world, I mean, are, is he talking .NET development, or is he talking... I don't know. You know kind of, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, if, if he's a beginner programmer, becoming an architect is going to be a little difficult, because to me, an architect is someone who has many years of experience yeah. and has really lived a lot of this pain points, because until you live the pain points, it's hard to abstract those and... Think of, think more generic, right? And you that's really what an architect's all about yeah. is thinking more generic, you know, programming with reusability in mind, thinking services, SOA, layers.
3: It's got to you know, come that's from experience. really
4: what it takes, yeah.
3: You know, you bring up an interesting point, which I, we often run up against, which is lots of people calling themselves architects, whether they really know what the word means or not. And uh, maybe we got to sort of take a step back and say, well, what is the difference between an architect and a developer? Or, you know, you can throw in the term engineer in there as well and sort of discern right. the different roles.
4: Yeah. I mean, that, that's a great you know thing to start with, right? I mean, what is an architect? What should be their role? What should they be doing? Right. I mean, to me, the person that's an architect should be providing, you know, a set of reusable components. They should be providing the design patterns for their team to use. They should, uh, thinking about other utilities that they can build like code generators or take advantage of like getting some out there. An architect provides naming and coding standards. Um, they're looking at increasing the productivity of their developers, lowering costs for the company, which is then going to increase the profitability of the company. That's the major job of an architect, I think. Okay.
3: Do architects still write code?
4: Um, I think they should write some code, yes, because I think if you're not into that world, you know, how can you really think about, you know, what the problems are, right? Okay. I,
3: I always use the lines, prototypes and firefights <laughs> for an architect.
4: Yeah, Yeah, and that's part of it. But, you know, look at what Carl did with the, you know, his little wrapper thing, right? I mean, yep. that's, that's something that an architect would do. That's not something that a beginning developer would think about. They would just say, oh, I just got to write this code each time. Yeah. You know, an architect is thinking, how can I make that easier? How can I make it more reusable? How can I wrap it into an assembly so that the new guy coming in just has to learn these two lines of code and just include this assembly.
2: You know, a lot of it, too, is thinking about uh, design when you know you don't have to write it. You know what I mean? (laughs) You you sort of, you have to zoom out a little bit, don't you think, as an architect, and think about, well, I don't have to write this all by myself. There's going to be, you know, obviously three or four developers, five, whatever, how many you have. And so you have to be thinking in terms of you know, splitting up the tasks of somebody's going to write the components, somebody's going to write the data layer, whatever it is that you're working on, Uh, right? As an architect, don't you you sort of have to not think about, you know, the way that you would do it if you were just coding by yourself?
4: Absolutely. Absolutely. Take someone with a vision, right, that bigger picture vision. Right. Um, That's really what it comes down to, yeah. And, you know, how do you get that vision? I mean, as a beginning developer starting out, it's hard to have that vision because Mm -hmm. you haven't, lived enough you haven't done enough stuff right
3: you think experience is the essential part of an effective architect i really do yeah
4: experience but that ability to think outside the box think more global in nature yeah right i mean that's really what it comes down to is that you're thinking more global you're thinking about more reusability more generic routines you know um uh, you know just how you design screens even okay is part of architecture And, yeah, I don't think an architect architect himself is actually going to do all the screen design and everything else, but he can sure lay up a good layout that's going to be reusable and changeable.
2: Yeah. Got another question here from the the, uh, chat room from Bruce McLeod, and he's from Sydney, Australia, and he says, Paul, do you recommend the Enterprise Library from MS Patterns and Practices? You didn't like the data access block because it didn't support Oracle. Bruce McLeod.
4: Yeah, great. Good, good question. Um, I did not like the application blocks before because they were too Microsoft centric. Mm-hmm. They also were not, to me, they just weren't easy to to use and learn. At the very beginning, they've gotten better in that respect. Now, the data access layer in the enterprise application block does support, you know, the uh, Microsoft and the Oracle client, which is mm-hmm. nice.
1: Mm-hmm.
4: Um, one of the problems that I have with it is it's not. It's all written in C sharp. Okay, so the VB people kind of feel a little bit left out, and there's a lot of VB.net people out there, mm. and they're feeling a little bit slighted right now. And, um, but other than that, I think, yes, I think they've done a better job on the enterprise libraries. and I think if you don't already have a data access layer in place at your shop, I say wholeheartedly go and get it, okay? Mm. Like for us, we built our data access application blocks, you know, way back before Microsoft even had a clue about theirs, so that's why we continue to use ours, even though right. now theirs is essentially similar to what I've had for three years.
2: So, and, and you've been tweaking and uh, and you know perfecting your thing for a few years now. That's so, correct. Yeah. yeah. What
4: uh, we added Oracle support. We added, we actually added Sybase. Sybase came out with a native driver, so I just dropped that in. Sweet. About uh, three months ago.
2: Sweet. What uh, What companies are if you can if you can name any that uh, we would know that are using it. I think I actually may have asked you this on the last show, come to think Our of it. Our framework, you mean? Yeah.
4: Um, yeah, I mean, some I can mention. Um, let's see, City National Bank. Uh, they're a big uh, regional bank out here, um, J.D. Powers & Associates. Um, there's okay. a, a very large insurance company and roadside assistance company that has purchased ours, a very large healthcare care uh, company, um, Boeing, Rockwell. So we've got, you know, American Express actually is one of our big clients. Actually, they have two site licenses of our framework.
2: I've heard of them. Uh, One
4: in, yeah, one in North Carolina, one in Arizona. So we have a lot of people that have actually purchased our framework. And and with that, they've also purchased, um, you know, a lot of our time to come in and help them with the architecture, you know, and how things should be run at their particular shop. So it's been kind of fun.
2: What is, I mean, I don't mean to make this sound like an infomercial. I know you're sensitive to that too, but what does it cost if I want to buy it?
4: Uh, our it's... framework itself—if you buy the whole thing, which includes the .NET framework, the desktop framework, all of our reusable blocks, the uh, code generator, all of my ebooks come with it as well. Um, two days of training. Um, the whole thing is anywhere between fifteen and twenty-four thousand dollars, depending on how many of those pieces you take. Huh. So, and that's a site license for all developers at your site. Um, and we'll, we can you know negotiate the price if you're like a single developer or right. you you know just have a couple of people. We're happy to work on that too with you.
3: That's good. Now Paul, not to put you on the spot, but you done your ROI numbers? Do you know what the productivity increase is for a customer jumping into that framework?
4: Yeah, absolutely in fact, um, we did we've done ours personally inside, but we also went to our clients just last year that have purchased it and asked them and got their numbers. Um, I mean, the guy, American Express was great. He said, "Well, we probably saved about 800 hours in the first project." Wow! But overall, when we looked at everybody's versus the size of the project, we found it was anywhere between 25 and 30 percent savings on on the first app, and then it would probably get a little bit better, you know, as they continue to use it and get more familiar with it. So, do you have a link? Kind of uh, unofficial, you know, survey of our customers.
2: Do you, Paul? Do you have a link of uh, to it? A URL? Sure.
4: www dot pdsa that's pdsa like paul d sheriff and associates dot com slash products real simple great and we do a uh we do a uh every two weeks we do a webcast where i show a demo of it so and you can sign up right there at my uh website as well uh, so you can sign up and then we do a live demo of the thing and you can ask questions and everything that's great you know what i i mean i I don't like you know me i don't like turning things into an infomercial needle no yeah i know you know mine is just one of many frameworks that are out there, there are a lot. You know, I would suggest going up to Microsoft's Patterns and Practices site and yep. take a look at you know their enterprise library. They've got a lot of things in there, like we have, like Declaret has, like Mere Mortals. You know, they're all they all have their benefits and their downsides. Okay, <laughs> a lot of people want to build it themselves, and which is great. You know, if you have the time, and it's a great way to learn and a great way to think more generically to build one yourself. But a lot of people don't have time, and that's right. why these frameworks are very popular. The, Ro- you know,
3: it's a pretty yeah. stunning number to take on a framework, irrespective of whose, and expect ultimately a 25% improvement in performance of building applications. That's that's not trivial. That's awesome, actually. You, now, yeah. Rocky Lotka's uh, framework,
2: is that primarily just a, a business object framework, or does that have the kind of stuff that you – and I know you may not know anything about it, but – Have you seen that? I know
4: a little bit about his. I'm not as familiar with his as some of the other ones. Um, But, yeah, his is, you know, a lot of little wrapper classes and things like that. It is a business framework. Um, But, you know, we have a lot more utilities, a lot more programmer productivity tools, um, rapid application development. Things that we have that you know he doesn't yeah, have. That's right. Yeah. Um, but his, you know, I'm going to tell you, Rocky is fantastic, and he's a good buddy of mine. Yeah, I'm just you trying know, to discern between about his.
2: Just trying to discern between the two. His is really focused on building business objects. And by the way, we got to have him on to talk a little bit more about his. yeah I his think we should object. yeah talk about
3: that. But it's definitely, I think it's a business tier. Yes. Uh, architecture is what yes. he's talking about. Yeah. And what Rocky's built.
2: Okay, one more question from the uh, – uh, and I guess this is a follow-up question about the application blocks from right. Gus Emery from uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota, who says, uh, do you think the database layer has overhead by getting all the SPROC metadata, the store procedure metadata, or do you think it's a good idea? And he's talking about the uh, application block here.
4: Yeah, the data yeah. access application block, if you start – if you're programming against store procedures you know, exclusively – um, one of the things that you can do is you can, you know, say, go out and give me the command parameters, and it'll actually fill in the parameters by go reading uh, the sproc out there. Uh, and that, that has the overhead. However, if you set up those, um, those parameters yourself and you pass those in, you can cache those that you passed in. That way it never has to go read them. So yeah. there's two ways to use it. And if you use it the right way, then obviously you're not going to hit that overhead. But know that you're only going to hit that overhead the first time you call it, right? After it's been cached, you're never going to hit it again. So,
3: the other side I would mention on that then is that if you do code it, it means when you modify a stored procedure, you got to modify your code too. Where right. if you're fetching it, you at least have an ability to tolerate some changes in a stored procedure.
4: Yeah. Yeah. Good point. Good point.
3: Paul, there's a couple of things to do with staffing. I remember you telling me once, I don't like star programmers. Give me an intermediate programmer every time.
1: Yeah.
4: Yeah. I, I agree with that and I still agree with that. Um in fact, jaded? these days I'm looking <laughs> more for the architecture level type people, you know, because I mean I'm you know, and I hate to say this, I mean we are doing our best not to outsource to, you know, any other foreign country. Um, one of the things that we're actually starting to do right now is do what's called farm shoring, where we're going to the Midwest to find cheaper resources than are out here in California because people out here, you know, such a high cost of living.
3: Yeah, you got to charge more. And I know you've always had distributed development. You've always had guys in other cities, in other states. For years and years, you've been like that. It, long before it was common, you were doing this.
4: Absolutely. And, you know, and they're not the stellar programmers, but the reason why it works is because we have a good architecture in place. We write good specs. And with good specs and a good architecture, I can pretty much have anybody code that application. Right, And then I get it back, and then we just do our final QA and testing and fix up anything. But as long as i got the standards in place, the people, wherever I send it, know what I expect of them, know the standards, and understand that they have to use our framework, what I'm getting back is not too far away than people that I would have on staff do. Right, sure. So then it works.
3: And, and, I mean, why wouldn't a star programmer be a good solution in this position? Like, why do you prefer the intermediate in that kind of scenario?
4: Well... In most cases, I don't need a star programmer because the framework's already been built, right? I mean, if I've already got everything right. wrapped up, what do I need a star programmer, you know, who I'm paying big bucks to? Yeah. I mean, he's going to be the guy that I would have writing the framework.
1: the right, yeah, right.
4: framework's already built. Why do I have him sitting writing a business application? And
2: sometimes right? if there isn't anything challenging enough for him, he'll make something challenging.
4: <laughs> exactly and that can be a double-edged sword can't that can it? be a problem yeah, definitely because i might be able to put it back into my framework but it might be bad because now he re-engineered something that was working just fine because he wanted to do something more challenging
2: right why why buy a tool when you can write it yourself in 10 times the time yeah, yeah. And, it, and a weekend is an
3: infinite amount of time
4: yeah. yeah and it's not just so much a star programmer either richard it's those cowboys who want to do yeah. things their way don't want to conform to any standards and right. you know I, I think somebody mentioned this at the beginning of the show it's like you know it stifles their creativity no a framework should never stifle creativity what it right. should do is let you be creative in the parts where the program demands it right and forget about the mundane stuff like doing a security system My like, god we how many times have we program that right, right. <laughs>
3: yeah i don't want to write that again Ever One more uh, stolen Paul Sheriff line. And you got to know, you are one of the guys that I quote when I'm out in the field, right? I say, my friend Paul Sheriff says this. And one of the lines that I've used over and over again is, you are only happy with a project. You are only really happy with its code when you cannot tell which one of your guys wrote it. (laughs) That the code is so uniform, you can't tell.
4: We wholeheartedly believe that. Um, I mean, you know my uh, VP, Michael, as well. and He and I both come out of the same mold, you know, out of aerospace. We're the old-timers. And, you know, standards were beat into us. And everybody programmed the same way because I want to be able to, you know, I mean, how many times have you heard in your shop, you know, oh, God, he's on vacation now and i got to go look at his code. Oh, my God, his code is horrible, right? Or last one out just gets all beat up. Oh, he wrote that code. You know, that was so horrible. we got to rewrite the whole thing. And that doesn't happen if you have good standards and architecture in place because everybody's following the same standard, yeah, so i I mean we still wholeheartedly believe in that absolutely
3: what do yeah, you i I mean, I use that line for a reason. I think it's a great goal to be able to just because everybody can read the code, they expect the same results every time that there is a right name for a variable, there is a right name for a stored procedure, so you know where to look. Yeah. How do you enforce the standards, Paul?
4: well. Recently, we tried to look at some of those, you know.
3: Electroshock
2: uh, therapy?
4: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we, we programmed uh, electric shock things into every chair that we buy, you know. So, for, you know, they do something wrong and it automatically does it. So.
2: Dim. Gzz, gzz.
4: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They do dim eye as, as integer, gzz, they get shocked, right? You know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, we've tried to look at some of the electronic uh, code checkers that'll help you check for standards. I haven't found one that really works um, 100%, although they're pretty good.
2: What do you think of FXCOP?
4: That one, I think, is probably one of the better ones um, from what I've seen so far. Um, but a lot of times, you know, we, again, are enforcing. We have a standard and a process that we follow with code reviews that are going throughout the project lifecycle. So nothing gets too far before we have a chance to correct somebody so it's really done more the old traditional way of just code reviews and how,
3: how do you do your code reviews what's your model you know and a regular actually we should talk about this as a whole cuz i love this topic as tell me about the week of development at pdsa working on a project with a group of guys cuz right. i would presume inside of that week there'd be a code review and so on and so on
4: Absolutely. i mean there's a couple of things that kind of go on there right i mean there's our process for how we start an application—the discovery phase, talking with the client, and then setting a project up in SourceSafe, creating a prototype—how we start that. Then, um, as we're coding, how we're coding to the standards, when we do our code reviews. There's our, um, you know, either weekly or biweekly staff meetings where we actually—and well, actually, there's two levels of staff meetings that we have. One is the team meeting. Where people are talking about their project that lasts typically about fifteen minutes to an half an hour, um, that could be although it might be longer if we did a code review at that. So time. This
3: is sort of like a Monday morning scrum kind of thing. What yeah, are you going to exactly. do this week?
4: Hmm. Absolutely, yeah. Where are we at, and what are we doing next? Okay, and then we might do a code review on somebody's section of code if somebody's having an issue. Um, we also then have our regular staff meeting with the whole team, and we do a lunchtime thing. I'll buy lunch. I bring in lunch for everybody and we actually would have some guy get up and present either something out of their project. Um, so now, see, that's a great thing right there, is if they've got to hold their code up and so for everybody to see in the shop, that's an instant code review, isn't it?
3: Absolutely. Hmm. Yeah, and it also I think it puts a little heat on everybody to make their code beautiful. You know, it's more important when you know you're going to show this to the guys. Yeah. I always love the Friday. I dedicate a whole Friday afternoon, you know, you code in the morning, lunchtime, the pizzas show up, and the whole afternoon is burned on, on a code review. And in, it, it sort of made sure that if somebody did something every week, that you always had a deliverable because you had to show it.
4: Absolutely. Absolutely. And, that, you know, that's important, too, is those short deliverables. Okay? That's one thing that we really believe in. Because if I've got two weeks to get the next build out, you know, that first week, I better be halfway done, or I know already that I'm not going to make it. Right? Yeah, yeah. So I got the whole week. To, to fix the problem or inform the customer <laughs> that we're going to be late because of this reason.
3: Yeah. yeah, it's amazing how customers react when you can tell them you're going to be late before you're late. <laughs>
4: That's correct. Yeah. So right there, we kind of have a built-in process for code review, don't we?
1: Absolutely. And doing
4: all of these things, people are really thinking about how they program because they know that we're going to be looking at it either because they're going to be late, so that means I'm going to be jumping in or one of our senior guys is going to jump in there and look at that code. Well, that code better be, you know, up to standards or we're going to have some real problems, okay? And I mean, we fire people over not following standards. It's that wow. simple. So there's a lot of incentive to do things, you know, standard at our shop, yes.
2: Well, uh, this uh, question was the same uh, from the same guy who asked the last question, uh, Dan from Virginia, uh, who asked you, how do you enforce the standards? He says, how do you think the new Visual Studio team system will fit
3: into this process?
4: Oh, that's a a great question.
3: Awesome question. Yeah. What do you think of VSTS?
4: Well, first off, let's talk, you know, a lot of people probably aren't even familiar with what the new team system is, right? Yeah. Okay, so what Microsoft has done in the next version, what we're going to start seeing in Visual Studio.net 2005, is kind of a, a, a tool to help you manage the process from start to finish. And that means designing classes designing your assemblies, designing where those assemblies are going to live, on which machine, on which server. So you're actually going to physically map your, your server, your network architecture, with your application servers, your uh, web servers, your database servers, and you're going to be able to bring all of the pieces of your project together and actually deploy it through the team system. Okay, so if you think about it, what they're doing is they're actually putting an automated process and procedure now into Visual Studio, which is wonderful.
3: It's awesome, as long as it works.
4: As long as it works. You know, and it's a little too early to tell still, because it's still pretty raw at this time. Um, I just got the February CTP, um, you know, the Community Tech Preview. Um, yeah. And it doesn't even have, they took it out. I mean, I got the professional edition, so. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
4: you know, so they're having a lot of issues around it, but, but what they're doing is they're trying to help us Right. Create these process and procedures. Where now I just simply have it documented. This is how we do this. This is how we build assemblies. This is how we put them in a source save. This is how we check them out. This is how we then deploy them out to the customer. Right now, it's a manual, semi-manual process. But they're going to try to automate it for us, which I think is a wonderful thing to do. Right? It's they're exciting to move stuff. More to yep. the architecture. Mm-hmm. It is. It's really exciting.
3: Yeah.
2: Well, Paul, we're coming to the end of our show, and uh, before we go, though, I got to. I gotta say, you know, I've seen your pictures, you know, with Allison Balter in the back of magazines and stuff, and (laughs) and and I see your picture all over the place. It's it's almost it's more pervasive than my picture, which is really strange.
4: And (laughs) I didn't Well you've
2: got hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours of video. I mean it's amazing. I know
4: it's it's pretty amazing. Well anyway,
2: I'm always really, really impressed with your hair, man.
3: (laughs) (laughs) You have
2: good hair. Paul, no question. And the thing is, around here right. we already have a good hair guy, Jeff. <laughs> yes, yes, thank you. And Jeff's hair is is legendary. And uh, so I want to ask the listeners: you know, A or B? Paul Sheriff's hair or Jeff's hair? Which do you like better? Send us an email to net. Rocks net. We'll read the results on the last on the next show.
4: Awesome, <laughs> cool. Hey, that's great. That's great. Well, I appreciate it. <laughs>
2: How do you like that, Jeff? Wow,
3: <laughs> that's great.
4: Sorry, Jeff, didn't mean to put you into competition there. <laughs> yeah,
3: it's like uh, wow. I know where my vote's going. You, ma- you have the most carefully groomed
2: <laughs> hair of a developer I've ever seen in my whole flipping life. Well, and
3: it matches the beard too. It's very symmetrical. Very it's symmetrical got a real good look to it. Very neat. That's right.
4: I worked hard at that too. It's Not a very. Well,
3: I remember the first time I met you, which is a stunningly long time ago, and it was the the Tweedy jacket and the button-down shirt, and the jeans, and the cowboy boots. Oh, yeah. Your jeans and cowboy boots, man. That's yes, right. sir.
1: I remember
4: that.
3: It wasn't quite as gray a hair as it is today. No, it wasn't. <laughs> but it was a long time ago.
4: That's right. Before kids and marriage and everything else. And all
3: those things. Yeah, it was. <laughs> yeah. So. Well, anyway, yeah. uh, last-minute uh,
2: things that you want. Uh, here's a question I like to ask everybody before we hang up, and that is, what have you downloaded lately that's really cool?
4: What have I downloaded? Oh, you know what? Um, it's the uh, Acronis true image. I don't know if you guys have played with that.
3: Oh, no, I'm, a Cro- I'm an Acronis believer, man. I use nothing but. Oh, never okay. heard I mean, of it.
4: Throw away the Norton, you know, ghost, and throw away the, the PowerQuest, you know, disk image. This thing will actually back up your whole environment while you're on. I mean, you just yeah. run it right in Windows, and it just backs the whole image. All right. the is- Server editions
3: will do Active Directory properly, which I've never seen done before. You know who turned me on to it, it was Tommy Howe.
4: Uh, Ken Getz turned me onto to that.
3: Oh, yeah. Well, they, of course, these guys are all friends, right? But, man, Acronis is the best product.
4: It's, so that's the one that I really like right now.
3: Wow. I've never it's heard really of it, cool. so I'm going to check it
2: out.
4: Yeah. And then the other one that I'm using is Beyond Compare. Um, that's what allows you to, like, I, I use that to back up my hard drive, you know, just my data files and things that I want to back up to my external hard drive. It actually looks at each side, and then you can just synchronize, and it'll just take the delta of whatever's on your uh, machine and copy it over to that other disk for backup. Very fast. Mm. So
2: awesome! Well, we'll those have two to, are the
4: ones that I like.
2: I have cool. to give us a shout. Well, man, yeah. thanks. It's it, you know what can I say? Thanks for being on the show again.
4: No, thanks. Yeah. Hey, we got to get together and do some music, man. I picked up drums again after twenty years. So,
2: well, you gotta got to come drumming. up to the studio and play with me, man.
4: Yeah. Awesome. That'd be fun.
2: Well, listen. On behalf of myself and Jeff Maisiolic in the chat room, Paul Sheriff, Richard Campbell out in Vancouver, British Columbia, have a great week and write some code.
1: The